Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Chapter 2 of Ephesians is just one of the highest watermarks of all of Scripture. Let me remind you where we were just last week to set the stage. Paul says in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, As for you, you were dead. Do you remember that? Yeah, we celebrate the land of the living dead last week, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But let me jump down to verse five, that Christ made us alive, alive when we were dead, and it is by grace that we have been saved. So the alienation we had vertically with God has been erased through Jesus Christ. Now today we come to this tough horizontal alienation that lives on our planet. Go all the way back to the first story in the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve and the alienation that happened with God through sin. Do you remember what our ancestors did? Yeah, fig leaves, hiding. We're shameful, and so we don't want each other to notice our weaknesses, our inadequacies, so we hide, but we've learned all kinds of defense mechanisms over the centuries of how to put the other person down, how to control the other person, how to cancel the other person, and we haven't come together. So what's the solution? Paul gives us the amazing solution that we find in Christ. So put away your fig leaves. Here we go. In Ephesians 2.11, therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. Remember that little U-N in front of that word. I'll come back to that. By those who were called, called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the human by human hands in the body. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. That's a bad day, but it's solved in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul begins, just as he did in the first part of Ephesians 2, where he talks about our living death that we lived in before Christ. He gives us the bad first before he gets to the good. And he calls us to remember the pain of exclusion. Do you remember your junior high days? That's probably where you first discovered the pain of exclusion. You started noticing clicks. There were the jocks, and there were the, in my day, there were the musicians and the cool hippies, and then there, there were the cheerleaders and the socias and all, and, and some of them, and then there were the gangs, because uh, we had gangs in, in my high school, and none of them would get along with each other. Well, Paul talks about our pain of exclusion but our exclusion was from God, was with God, not being able to get to God. 
So he calls us to remember it. And so going forward, as we think about how do we discover true unity, it's important to remember the pain of exclusion. And we need to stare that down, that old default, until we make this new choice into Jesus. And then he brings up this awkward word for modern societies, this word circumcision. What Paul is getting at is the haves and the have-nots. The circumcised were people who were born Jewish or had converted and proselytized to Judaism, and the males had to be circumcised to be accepted by God. What that meant was everyone who was uncircumcised was outside the circle, could not be accepted by God. Now, that's an outward thing that's related to our body, and it sounds so strange to us to attach that to spirituality and religion. But think again. Think about our society. Everything in our society is attached to the physical. Think about junior high again, and, and are you wearing the right clothes? How, are you developing like other people in your age stage? Are you wearing the right shoes? How's your hair? We're used to externals tagging us as to whether we're accepted or not. And that happened in the ancient world as well. So Paul gives us this little parenthesis where we read, done in the body by the hands of men. What he's saying there in verse 11 at the end is just, how incidental is this? We're talking about something that man does to their body to make us cool or not cool. And yet we still do it. Let me give you, instead of the uncircumcised, let me give you some other uns that exist in our culture, unbeautiful, unwealthy, unbrilliant, that would be my problem, unpopular, uncool, here's a religion, uncharismatic, uncovenant, unevangelical. You see, we use these today to describe who's in and who's not. So this alienation continues oftentimes to go on, and it's that pain of separation. Now, what are we separated from? Paul goes through this extensive list just to drive it home in verse 11 here. He says, we're alienated from Christ, from citizenship with God in heaven. We're alienated from the covenants of the promise. And there's zero hope in our world. And we don't have God. So now that you have this picture painted by Paul, picture the Grand Canyon if you've ever been there. And you're looking over the, across the Grand Canyon. Of whether, I don't know whether that's a mile or five miles. I can't remember. But it's really, really deep. And let that be a picture of the division that exists in humanity. I was so pained this last week to find that the dear country of Armenia finds itself uh, in battle with Azerbaijan. And, and very quickly, 
the stakes go higher as Turkey, who despises Armenia, sides with our, our Azerbaijan, and, and, and Armenia is looking to see if Russia is going to help them. And how many times has that happened in our world? But you and I, we do the same in our social life. We find something, someone, or not you, but someone might be, we find a church that we don't, just, we don't agree with. And what do we do? We quickly look for someone who will side with me. The most recent thing that I have found is, uh, will you wear a mask or won't you wear a mask? Will you take this view of the COVID situation or you take that view of the COVID. We will find anything to be divisive about. What rather Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, to strive, to strain, make every effort for what? To be right? To be separate? No, for unity. It's that important to God. So Paul pulls it all together in verse 14, where I want you to see in verse 14, he talks about this wall, this dividing wall of hostility. What is he talking about? Well, he actually uses a religious symbol to bring home his point. In the temple, there was a dividing wall that kept away actually two separations. The common people couldn't go into the temple itself. Only the priests could. The court around that, only Jewish males could go into that. And then outside of that, only women and Gentiles. And so Paul is picturing that outside separation where women and Gentiles can't be with male Jews, and that was a wall of separation or a wall of hostility. So Paul is pointing to the fact that religion oftentimes is where division happens the most. Let's be honest. It's really, really true. And if you uh, relate to the history of Protestantism, we can be the most guilty of it because we have hundreds and hundreds, actually thousands of uh, groups and denominations where we separate, 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 separate uh, over view of predestination, over baptism, over um, how we dress, of high church, low church. It just goes on and on and on of why I cannot be with you. And Paul is putting his finger on religious division. I'm always amazed at uh, how Jesus in his time, he put his finger on that multiple times. One was with the story of the Good Samaritan, where you have a Levite and a priest that they're on their way and they're too religious to stop and help a person who's been beaten up and robbed, but it's, it's someone of a different race and a different religion that becomes the hero in the story and how that must've graded on the Jewish hearers when a Samaritan is held up as the hero of the story. Or how about 
the, the, the Samaritan woman. Where Jesus hangs out, he sends the rest of the disciples in, to, um, in and out to get some burgers. And he's there all alone. He strikes up a conversation with a woman. And here you have three divisions. He's a man. Men don't talk to strange women. That's, that's not accepted. Secondly, she's of a different religion. Thirdly, she's of a different race. And Jesus humbles himself to ask her for water. Whoa. And that starts up the dialogue where Jesus finally puts his finger on the thing that's separated for her from God, and she discovers him to be the Messiah. Cancel, cancel, cancel. It's, it's a new word, but it's not a new idea. We have been doing this for a long, long time. There's a song I want to draw your attention to. I, I, don't, I love the song, so bear with me. And, and I love the songwriter, John Lennon. And we sing this song every New Year's. And, and we're imagining. You know the, the, the song. Imagine. And let me remind you of the words, just to poke fun at ourselves and a little bit at John Lennon. So he wants us to imagine unity. That's what the song's about. That, that, that we're all going to be in love and celebrating. And so we celebrate that on New Year's. So he imagined no countries. So we have no borders, no boundaries. Uh, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion, too. Because he sees that there's been a lot of religious wars. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You, you may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I think we're with them so far. I hope someday you'll join us and the world may be as one. Boom. He fell into his own trap. He recognizes he's singing to you and you don't agree with him. But I hope one day you will be because I'm so right and you're so wrong. We're, it's like quicksand. We cannot escape division. So what do we do? It feels so hopeless. Well, I'm glad you asked. The remedy is Christ. Look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We didn't tear down the wall. We didn't yell at the wall. We didn't uh, burn down the wall. God erased the wall. God did it through the blood of Jesus Christ. And his style was to be a servant, not to be darn right. His style was to die on the cross for you and me. For he himself is our peace. And there's the zinger. He himself, Jesus, is our secret to reconciliation, to unity. Who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing the flesh of the law, in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, 
thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both uh, them, them to God through the cross by which he put to get death their hostility. Excuse me. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So people who already felt close to God, but needed a savior and people who were just far away pagan. We all found our way to God through Jesus. And listen to what he says here. Verse 18, for through him, we both have access to the father in one spirit. So the curtain is torn. The hostility between us and God and each other is now gone. And we have a new reality, a new reality of being reconciled. And it wasn't through our ingenuity, our committees, our efforts. It was through discovering that we had one savior who led us to one father and filled us with one spirit. Have you ever noticed when you go to uh, Thanksgiving, um, Thanksgiving gatherings are pretty crazy for my family. You know, we had just a lot of crazy people in our family. And so it would be dozens and dozens of in-laws and outlaws gathering uh, for Thanksgiving. And I would always think what a motley crew, you know, you might not think these would never be my friends. <laughs> I would never hang out with these people, but because you share the same blood, the same DNA, you have the same grandparents you gather and it's that unity. And Paul is drawing us to that unity that we have because we are kids. You're my brother. You're my sister. It really doesn't matter to me how you vote. It really doesn't matter to me whether you wear a mask or don't wear a mask or whether you sprinkle or whether you baptize by immersion or whether you sing hymns or whether you sing choruses. It doesn't matter. And you're probably more right than I am. But that's not our unity. As long as we're driving, trying to find our unity in rightness, we'll never get there. But we find our unity in Jesus. And we have to unload our weapons there and say, you know what? Jesus forgave me of a lot of idiotic things I've done. And of course, I forgive you because your idiosity has not been as great as mine. And we find that unity in the third way in Jesus. Notice the words that he piles up here, almost like a, a car crash in the Thule fog in Fresno. Uh, through the blood, he himself is our peace. Made the two one, destroyed the dividing wall. So how do we get there? How did the cross do it? The cross abolished us needing to be right enough before God. Listen to that. The law demanded that you be right. You introspect and find out how right you are. And that sets up a scenario where you're going to judge other people who are not as right as you do. He's talking about religion, but we do it in, in fashion. We do it in politics. We do it in sports. We do it in everything. That these people, I can't be with them because they're not as right as I am. But 
Paul says the cross abolished the need to be right. He made us right. Verse 17, he came and preached peace and peace is unity to you who are far away and for those that are near. So we come to the conclusion and here in the last few verses, Paul describes what I call the great inclusion, which is to be the, um, the personality of the church. The church should be the place that is most inclusive. Consequently, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens and God's people, members of God's household. As a pastor, I work hard to think about how will a stranger feel coming into our church? They walk through the door and they got flip flops on. They're wearing shorts. How will they feel? They're of a different skin tone than my skin. How will they feel? They play different music than I listen to. How will they feel? They vote blue. They vote red. How will they feel? There should be an inclusion that's big enough that includes everybody because it's Jesus Christ. No one's a foreigner. No one's an alien. We are fellow citizens, and this big umbrella is God's household. Look at verse 20. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises together. I think that's key that Jesus is the cornerstone. Most cornerstones today are just a, a facade, but a real cornerstone that connects two walls together. It, if you pull out that cornerstone, both walls are weakened and the whole, those walls collapse and the whole building collapses. If we try to find our unity by making you like me or me like you, it will never get there. It's always going to be this wonderful third way, the cornerstone of Christ. So Paul brings us full circle. You know, our, in our beginnings, we talked about the spiritual blessings in chapter one, verse 13. He said there that one of the blessings we've discovered is we've been included. And he set the stage for now what he's unpacking right here and he's kind of come back around in chapter four one more time about unity and the divine unity that we have discovered we are to cherish he'll tell us in chapter four to make every effort to strive to get it and to guard it because it's so precious so let me bring it home to you what I read here is that unity is not an option. It's not extra credit. It's not extra innings. It's, it's the game. It's what God intended from the beginning. And if we race forward to Revelation, we find out that there's a diversity around the throne of God. If we go back to Acts, we find out that the early church had to wrestle with racial unity 
between Jews and Gentiles and the very thing that we're wrestling with in our country today. But the unique answer for the church is this transcendent answer found in Jesus Christ and needs to be modeled in the church today. Let me take you back to the 1720s to tell you the story of unity in this little area of Germany called Hernhut. Hernhut was actually a piece of property that was owned by Count Zinzendorf. Yes, it sounds like Count Zinzendorf. And, uh, and he was actually a wealthy man who owned this estate, but he cared about the work of the spirit that was happening in Europe at the time. And so all these Christian refugees came and found shelter in the village uh, outside of his estate of Hernhut. And um, what happened was because some of them were followers of Luther and some of them were followers of John Huss and others were followers of John Calvin. They all began to be divided with one another. They wouldn't talk with each other. If they did talk, they started arguing with each other. And Count Zinzendorf didn't know what to do. He was so grieved. And so he turned all of these Christians who were so darn right and divided to Jesus. But he couldn't just come up to them and lecture them about Jesus. What he did was he saw a third way. And he said, would you study the Bible together? Would you pray together? And they started doing things together. Uh, and they discovered that they actually loved each other. And, and they began to discover their unity in Christ. And out of that unity, there was a huge outpouring of the Holy Spirit that actually started the modern mission movement. The Moravians were birthed out of this. And the Moravians first took the gospel to St. John and St. Thomas to slaves, African slaves, because no one would give them the gospel. The Moravians did. And the Moravians took the gospel everywhere. And they had this model, this, this slogan, in essentials, unity. The basics. You hear me talking about majoring in the majors, minoring in the minors. Same idea. There are essentials. Uh, we have moral essentials. We have religious, spiritual essentials. I'm not willing to give up on Jesus being the son of God. I'm willing to love you, but when it comes to Christian unity, that's an essential. But he says in non-essentials, diversity, which means celebrate. It is so awesome people are not like me. And then he says in all things love which means whether it's an essential or a non-essential, the way you communicate always has to be love. So good, so great. And this becomes our motto for our church. When we began to explain our church as a, a church without walls and began to reach out to other churches as well as reach out to the community, Oftentimes, people would ask me, why are you doing this? Aren't we as churches supposed to be in competition? And my answer would be, because you're me. You're my family. And 
they would say, well, but I'm Presbyterian or I'm this or I'm that. I said, I don't care. You love Jesus. I love Jesus. That makes us one. And God is calling you and I to be that in our neighborhood, at the workplace, um, to be that gospel of light and that, that way of love. When I was young, um, not that I'm not young now, but when I was dating Jan, uh, we had our first argument. It was a strong one. <laughs> Do you remember your first argument? It's, it's the real test of whether you're going to be a couple or not. And I walked away, and because I like to pray, I went to this bridge I, I like to hang out on, and I prayed this prayer. Jesus, please show Jan how wrong she is. Can you believe it? Yeah, she's put up with me for 47 years, plus three years of dating. Well, what I heard back from the Holy Spirit was, I can't hear you until you get it right with her. If you're 1% wrong, you're wrong. And I had to put my tail between my legs, go back, because I was more than 1% wrong. I had not discussed the matter in love. I had gotten all huffy. I was darn right. And I had to apologize because I still, still thought I was right. But how I handled it was completely wrong. And I had to eat dirt and tell her, I'm sorry. And that was my first step to discovering Unity. There was a time later on in my Christian life. Now I've pastored for 30 years and someone really, really wounded me that I thought was my friend in the church. I just couldn't understand that kind of betrayal. And every morning I would wake up and I would think about them and in the wrongness of it all. You ever been there? And then I read the verse 70 times seven. And I quantified that and said, wow, that's 490 times. <laughs> so I decided every morning when I took a shower, put the shampoo on my head, I would pretend that God was forgiving me and I would pray forgiveness for them and a blessing onto them. And I thought I'm going to have to do this 490 times. I didn't even get close. It started where I couldn't remember them for a few days and then for a week and then for a couple of weeks. And then I realized I was done. I had truly forgiven them and a relationship that was important to God could be reestablished again. Folks, again, this is not extra credit. This is, this is critical. And for such a time as this, this is the moment where the church has something to say about all the division in the land. We are living in the land of Babel and everybody's right and nobody's wrong and, and the way it's being expressed is not the best. You and I, let's do everything in love. Let's decide what the essentials are and Jesus is the essential. In Jesus' name, let's do it. Amen.
Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.